0: If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. So, Acts 17, 17th chapter of Acts, is where we're going to be looking together as a church. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to say hello. My name is Lance. I'm one of the pastors here, and it'd be great to, to connect with you at some point. So, you could send an email or, send a, or get a phone call or something like that. It would be fantastic. Um, let me explain before I read in Acts chapter 17. A little bit about what we're doing and why I'm turning here. We are in a three-week period of time, this three-week period of time, we might call it sort of we're between sermon series. Uh, We use this word series to describe what we most often do. So normally as a church we preach what we could call expositionally, and that means that we teach through books of the Bible. We start a book, we start in the beginning, and we try to do the best that we can to be honest with the text and take it as it comes, uh, week in and week out, until we've exhausted it, until it's over. Well, until we're exhausted, maybe not, the Bible's never exhausted. But that's normally how we teach, we go through books of the Bible. And then, of course, we have moments where we want to pause and consider the church calendar, so we did that for Advent. But then every so often, there's a few weeks that are in the mix of that, that I think are crucial or special opportunities They allow us to consider and to think on things that are mainly of our own choosing. And so, I think that these can be thought of in a particular way. In the past, if you go back, say, seven years or so, the way that I've thought about these sermons, these moments where we weren't in a particular book, and so the topic comes from more or less my heart or my desire or my thoughts for what we are to be in the past when I've taught these sermons, uh, I called them ethos. They're what a desire for our ethic to be. And ethos is a funny little word. Uh, ethos is a little word that basically just means a habit. It's something that we do by habits. And you know, the funny thing about habits is you don't have to think about them. They just happen. You have a habit of putting your phone in a particular pocket, so you always reach there, even when it's not in your pocket. Habits are the kind of things that make up the subconscious life for good or for bad? So it's a way to describe people. If you get to know a certain family or a certain group of people or join a club, what you might be asking is, what is their ethos here? What are their customs? What do they value? What do they do by habit? And so, that funny little word, enough on the little word, I, I think the point behind that is, is that we need to stop every once in a while and consider what is, what is the thing that drives us, what are our habits? If someone interacted with us for a period of time as a church, what are the things that they say, oh, they do this so naturally, so obviously, so consistently, it seems as though it's habitual. This is just the way they operate. And so this morning, as we start this new year, after a year that more or less felt very holed up, very inward, very let's survive, basically forced that way by what was happening in the world, I want us to contemplate an outward life. I want us to remember and to challenge us to see if it is true of us that we have a habit of caring for the lost, a habit of praying for people who don't know Christ, a habit of of being consistent with what we know and say to be true. And what we know and say to be true is that Jesus Christ in His coming, Emmanuel, God with us, in His living, perfectly righteous life, in His dying to absorb the wrath of God for sin, and then in resurrecting to new life, that that truth is the defining factor, the dividing line of all human history, and that you never, ever, ever, ever meet a normal person. We are interacting with eternal souls designed and made in the image of God, people who will graduate from this life to eternal life or to eternal damnation. That is the Christian message. That's what we've carried along for a couple thousand years now. And what I wonder is, does that belief drive us to a habitually outward life? Are we moved toward others? Do we have a list that we keep in our pockets of people that we long to see grow into life in Christ? Last week, we talked about this new motive that we should all have, and Brent did a fantastic job, a super, super good job. Brent, I'm grateful for you being willing to preach, and I'm just going to drop this in. If you weren't here last week, we had one of our pastoral interns, Brent Shepard, who helps with college ministry and then runs our, a lot of our student ministry stuff. Um, he preached for us. And uh, I'm grateful that you were willing to do that, and I'm grateful for opportunities. Um, back in like 2000 something, when I was 22 and had no, not, this is not gonna be an insult, I don't wanna hear it this way. When I had no reason or right to ever teach or preach to a crowd of people, I had a pastor who I knew for a long, long time invite me to teach. And it was one of the more defining factors for me. I remember just thinking like, well, this is amazing. What am I going to do now? Now it's no longer theory. I need to actually put this thing into action. And so I thought to myself, who else has absolutely no right, or who would it be so foolish to ask to preach? And Brent, you came right to mind. So (laughs) I hope, I hope that it is a defining thing for you as a deposit in your soul. Uh, I firmly believe that. Proclaiming and preaching the Word of God should be something that we foster in one another, and I thought you did a very, very faithful job. All that to say, that the content of Second Corinthians chapter five, the content tells us that we have a new motive, right? And we're new creations in Christ. That means that we go around the world on a mission, looking at other people, saying, "Are you new in Christ?" Because if they're not new in Christ, they're old in sin. That's just the basic reality of our world. And so, this morning, as an ethic, as a habit, I desire for us, this is something that I've prayed for us as Four Oaks Midtown from the beginning, going back seven years. If you said, well, what are the things that we're longing for? What are we praying about? Here's the little phrase, and we've considered this together. In fact, I think the last time we did this directly would have been nearly six years ago. But this little phrase is something that I pray from my gut for us, that we would have a habit of being a winsome witness, a winsome witness in the world. And I want to define in some ways as we consider Acts chapter 17 together, well, what, what would this look like for us to be ambassadors, to be a witness into the world, but to do so in a winsome way? And winsome is a wonderful word. It means wise, it means loving, it means careful, it means sensitive, it means attractive, and ultimately, of course, it means where it comes from, its root, that we would win some. And so, a winsome witness as an ethic for our life as a church that in all of the craziness, and believe me, I'm living in the middle of a whirlwind of craziness, We all know this. Our hearts are broken and just watching the news for five seconds. It's very easy to feel insecure in this day and age. It would be very, very easy and possible for us to go inward as much as we can and say, let's just hold on. But if that is all we do, I believe it's unfaithful to the call on our lives as Christians individually and on our call as a church corporately. So, that is the backdrop of what we are. Ultimately, the question for us must be, are we seeing people dead in their sins coming to enjoy and to experience and to erupt in the new life that Jesus gives as He forgives sinners? And if we're not seeing that, And if right now you can't have even come to your mind one person who you're longing that for, one person who you've prayed for in the last month, then I want to call us back and I want to say, okay, we've maybe gotten out of our habits. So that's a long intro. Long intros are the worst thing ever, but there you go. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Acts 17, 16. It's not surprising, of course, if I think, well, what passage are we going to take to describe a winsome witness in the world? Well, let's just go to the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read the first, oh, six verses or so, and then I'm going to pause, but by the time we're done this morning, we're going to get through all the rest of the book, or all the rest of the book, (laughs) yikes, all the rest of the chapter in Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to start with verse 16. This is the 16th verse in Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, Let's pause here, and I want to pray for us as we start uh, the morning. Uh, I'm going to pray as well uh, for our greater world. I think we all have seen and likely felt the, the chaos of our day and age, and I want to take some time and uh, to bow and to pray uh, with you over these things, and then this morning that God would be with us uh, in a way that brings comfort. So let's pray. God, I ask that you would be peace and you would be power and you would show might in a world that is clamoring, foolishly, dangerously for power and for might. God, we pray for a maturity, a maturity of character in our nation, a maturity of discourse, a maturing of righteousness in all its facets and claims. God, we pray for reconciliation where there is division, We pray, God, that we would have freedom, yes, but not use freedom as a license or an excuse for our own pursuits and for sin. God, develop in us a love of neighbor. And more than that, God, would you develop in us the deep work necessary to not only love neighbor as self, but to do as Jesus taught us and to love our enemies. Not to slander them or to speak against them as a kind of sport. Father, give us the fruit of the Spirit. Keep us from being animated by petty and vain things but animate us toward the gospel and stir our passion away from the trappings of this world, away from politics, and toward the eternally true things. Help us to see not the temporal, but the reality of people and their position regarding Jesus. God, we pray, starting with us, starting with me, Spirit of God, would you bring about a sweetness of repentance in our nation. Sober us. Spirit of God, slap us to awaken us. We pray, God, that the good gifts, the good things that you've given us in this nation for hundreds of years, that they would continue. We pray against evil in all of its forms. We pray that as powers are transferred from one to another, that you would remind us that you are in control, that all of the the justifiable and rightful fears in many different directions about our present and about our future, that these would be stilled and that you would give us hope. Father, I ask now that as we've read Acts chapter 17 and as we've looked at these words, as we think about the call of our lives, maybe even as we think about our own habits and the inwardness that we're tempted toward, Pray you'd release us from the bondage of thinking of self, that we would be spun outward with love and affection and truth. We want to be winsome and we want to proclaim you so that people would be alive in Christ. That's our desire. So, Spirit of God, move in our midst. Help us to see we're not smart enough. We've come here with so many doubts and distractions. It's hard to even pay attention through this prayer. God, that's the kind of people we are. We're not impressive. So, Spirit of God, use us, jar us, move us closer to you. Our our eyes need to be opened and our ears need to be dug and our hearts need to be softened. So, Spirit of God, move. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a few ways that I describe what's happening in Acts chapter 17. There's a few different sections, and let me just describe this first one as what I might call gospel presence. The whole episode of Paul's opportunity to witness starts with a simple description that he was in Athens. He was there. His presence is what initiates the entirety of this section of Scripture. So what I'm going to define gospel presence as, and I believe it's the first thing that we need to be a winsome witness in the world, what I'm going to describe gospel presence as, a willingness to initiate with and sacrifice for non-Christians. This is what a gospel presence means. It means that you understand that who you are and your being and your emotions and your thoughts and your very life need to be in some way directed toward and you need to be opened up in your heart. With a willingness to initiate with non Christians, and then also, inevitably, because this is what love calls of us, to sacrifice for them. It's going to be very, very, very difficult to make any impact in the world and to love people well if you say, I want to love them at arm's length with as little investment as possible. That's not a romantic sentiment. I'm just enamored with you. You're so attractive. You're amazing. You're my son. Now, here's the thing, though. I want to make this take as little time as possible. And if I could not even remotely inconvenience my life, that would be great. No one writes that on a Valentine's card. Love calls for presence and then eventually for sacrifice. So, let's look at what's happening in Acts chapter 17. What we see in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul, in the place that he is, shows a heart for the lost. It is his love first that leads to his engagement with these people. And it is a heart for the lost that will, in us, eventually lead to engagement with people that we long to love. There must be some way, some mechanism that we are consistently putting the weightiness of eternity before our hearts and minds, before we can endeavor to make a difference with our neighbors. And what happens here is that the Spirit of God is moving in the Apostle Paul, and it tells us that as he's waiting for his friends, essentially, in Athens, his spirit is provoked within him. His spirit is provoked within him, As he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this provoking seems to be the work of the Spirit of God, because it happened in Matthew chapter 9 in Jesus' life as well. It's not on the screens, but you might remember this this moment. Jesus, it says, was going through all the cities and villages. He is teaching in synagogues and proclaiming and he's healing diseases and afflictions. And then there's this moment in Matthew chapter 9, and we get this from firsthand witness experience. And so you can imagine Matthew looking across and Jesus lifts his head up from the work that he's doing, the engagement that he's in, he lifts his head up and he looks. He takes time to look around. And what Matthew sees, or what is seen in Jesus in this moment, Scripture tells us when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our presence, first and foremost, means that we need to open our hearts toward people. And the Spirit of God working in Jesus meant that He had compassion for the crowds as He saw them. He looked around at all of the craziness and all of the need and all of the dysfunction and all of the power and all of the preening and all of the pride, the poor and the rich, the healthy and the sick, and what He saw moved Him to compassion. It turns out that the Spirit of God working in the same way, and the Apostle Paul led him to a similar conclusion. He looked around at a city that was full of idols, and he was provoked within him. This provocation of soul meant that he had to pause long enough to put his heart there. He needed to be present in some way. Now, a couple of things about the way that he was moved and the place that he was in his presence. A lot of different people are described here. It tells us that there were Jewish people. He reasoned in the synagogue with Jewish people, with the Jews and the devout persons. You might say that his gospel presence was given over to religious people who disagreed with him. So, he said, well, who are the people that need Jesus or who are the people that need this message? He sees religious people. He says, well, I'll be present with them. And it tells us that he goes in the marketplace, he goes and he reasons with and he cares for and he is present with marketplace people, people who care about the dollar and our businessmen. Paul says, well, I can find idols in religious communities and I can find idols in the marketplace too, so I better go talk with them. Then he says, you know what, not only the marketplace and not only the religious people can I find idols in those places, but everyone who happened to be there, he reasoned with them. This tells me that there's very few people, in fact, I might say, not a single person in the world that isn't in some measure full of idols. Because what Paul's provoked by is a city that's full of idols, so he begins to apply his presence towards people. Uh, You religious people, I can find idols there. And marketplace people, I can find idols there. And then everyone who happened to be there had some little temptation of heart to attach their hope, to attach their future, to attach their life in an unhealthy way. It just doesn't mean it was a city full of idols like they all had their personal golden calf. That's not the point. It's much more subtle than that. It's the deep question and often the painful question, what am I hoping in? What am I so animated about? Why do I care so much? What am I protecting? What am I thinking about? What is my heart set on? All of us worship, and here's the thing about worship, what we worship grows in our affections. That's just the way that it works. So, you set your little idol of heart up, and then you pour a little time on it, and you pour a little thinking on it, and you pour a little affection and adoration on it, and you pour a little proclaiming and giving to others on it, and the next thing you know, you have a chia pet of an idol it's grown. So we're not done with the kind of people, we're not done with the kind of people yet that Paul said, here's the people I want to be present with. Not just the religious people, he could find some idols there. Not just the marketplace people, he could find some idols there. But every day with those who happen to be there. And then also verse 18 tells us some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. It turned out that he could find some idols there as well. Paul engaged with the philosophers of his day. Here's a couple of basic application questions for us. Are we present for and with non-Christians? Do we have a habit of desiring to initiate with and then potentially even sacrifice for them? Maybe I could say it like this. What kinds of people have you written off? Who are the kinds of people that you just think, I'm not good with them, I don't appreciate that, I'm just out? Now, of course, use wisdom. Right? Like, you don't join the mafia to reach them for Jesus. Like, that would be, maybe you would. I don't know. The point is, there are no kinds of people and no places that we should write off. If our spirit is provoked within us, it moves us toward the lost, not away from. A life of habitual initiating, and moving is what the Spirit of God creates in us. Here's another basic question for you. Not only what kinds of people have I written off, but how about this? List the names of the non-Christians that you know more than just casually or by introduction. I mean, what would the list look like? Here's my list of paper. These are the non-Christians that I actually kind of know. I'll admit to you, I'm a pastor, I'm with Christians like you all the time, like my whole life. Sometimes, and this isn't, a, this isn't like a, a down on you, if you're a, a mom with however many little ones you have, you probably don't have very much time for any friends, let alone bumping into a bunch of non-Christians. So, don't feel guilty about this, but I ask you this question to say over the course of time, Even a simple list of, I'm going to write down the name of the non-Christians I even know, because who else are you going to pray for? Who else are you going to hope to talk with? Who else are you going to give your love and affection and sacrifice for so that you may have an opportunity to say, well, what are your hopes and what what are you wishing for? And do you know Jesus or do you hate him or do you care or do you even, I mean, who else are you going to start with? So not as a guilt thing, but maybe just ask yourself, who do I even know. And in many ways and at many times and in many places, Christians have abandoned the lost rather than giving presence. So, for us to be a witness in the world, we need to be somewhat in the world. We need gospel presence. Second, and I'm going to start reading in verse 22, you know that as I read that first section, uh, these people invite Paul to teach them. He is preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and there are already some of them teasing him. He's a babbler. This is foolish. But some of them who just love to hear new things invite him to come. And so now he's at the unthinkable place. Paul has been given an opportunity to actually proclaim. Have you ever been there? You prayed for someone? You got to know them? Maybe for the longest time you had this generic theoretical idea of what if I ever shared the gospel with them and then the opportunity comes. And then you think, "Uh, where's the eject button? I, I don't know what to do with my hands. Like I, why are you asking me these things? And so let's start reading in verse 22 and consider, well, what does Paul say and what does he do? since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring." I'm going to pause there. We'll save the last few verses, the next point. What I want to say now is something that we should long for is what I'm going to call gospel fluency. And my hope would be that if you've been around Four Oaks Midtown for a while, that maybe you've heard these things before and maybe you could teach this for me, but gospel fluency. And what I'm going to define that is as a mastery of the gospel and its contextual applications not just the content of the good news, which Paul clearly has, but he has thought long and hard enough and spun the gospel long enough to see the light shining through the spinning diamond and the way that it lands on the places around him. Gospel fluency means not only a master of the gospel, but then an ability to apply it contextually. He knows how to wield the gospel to fight all of the idols of the city. Some idols are good at hand-to-hand combat. He's like, oh, let me show you my karate gospel. Some idols are good at emotional manipulation. And he's like, well, let me show you my therapist gospel, or whatever it is. You, know what I mean? you see what I mean? It's a rock, paper, scissors situation. He always has the answer. Because the gospel is one truth with one Lord over all. And so fluency in the gospel means that though we begin with the basics, we don't stop there. You know what one of my favorite ways to interact with companies is when I have a problem with their products? And believe me, this is already a harrowing experience. You know why one of my favorite way is though? Chat. You ever been on a website for a company and they have a little chat feature? Contact us, little bubble. I love this. It's my favorite thing in the world. It means that I don't get out of control with my tone of voice. It means that I can still do other things while they're putting me on hold forever. But you know what else happens sometimes? Sometimes I get on one of those chat things, contact us. There's always these wonderful personal-looking things, pictures of a person on there, and little hearts. We love you. Contact us. Chat. You know what I run into sometimes? I run into a robot. You ever run into a robot on one of these things? They're like, hello, how can we help your problem? Do you still have TV? I'm like, no, I don't have cable TV. I have a question about something else. What does the robot say? Here's how to fix your problems with TV. You just do steps one, two, and three. And then I'm like, now in all caps, I don't have a TV subscription with you. I just have a question about something else. The robot comes back and says, has this fixed your TV problem? Thank you. In other words, what is happening there? is that they have programmed some device with a whole bunch of content, but it has no idea my actual needs and how to apply what their help could be to my situation. The robot is not fluent in my problems. Sometimes, not judging anyone, maybe most judging myself, or most judging Christianity as a a whole, I think sometimes we're not very adept, we're a little robotic in the way that we describe the truth of Scripture. And I think that sometimes it happens robotically because we don't have a willingness to learn. And I'm going to say this in a couple of different ways. We don't have a willingness to learn. I want to start by saying we often don't have a willingness to learn about the world around us and the people and what they're struggling with and what they think. And then I'll say this too, oftentimes we don't have a willingness to learn the depths of the gospel. We got enough to get in, and then we just kind of stall out. And so what Paul shows all the way through this is a genuine willingness to learn. He's waiting around, the whole passage starts, you know where his witness begins in this passage? With him sitting and standing and listening. He listens to the crowd and assesses. Look at verse 22. Paul was standing in the midst of the Areopagus. The first thing that he tells them, he wants them to know that he's been paying attention. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For I passed along and I observed and I found the world that we're living in has things to find. The people that we encounter with need to be perceived. Paul's willingness to learn about the place that he was at led him to the opportunities. In order to bring the gospel to an unbelieving world, we must present ourselves first in humility as servants and learners. Jesus is the truth. He is the Lord of all. And in order to save the world and to redeem it, he came in as a baby. Some of us, some of the times, we would be better off, at least for a little while, to be a little bit more quiet when we enter those spaces so that we can learn. Jesus came, and he started by entering himself. And so Paul came, and he started with observing, and he started with seeing, and he started with perceiving, and he started with listening. And what happens is is that we begin to have avenues and inroads for love because we understand people's desires and their hopes and their failures and their sadness and their brokenness. And we can anticipate even the things that we're going to tell them that will be difficult for them. Sensitivity comes from both an understanding of humility of heart, but also sensitivity comes from being able to anticipate the way this will land on the other person. And we need to be forthright with people. Sin is a real thing, and it will be judged, and we have problems if we're not in Christ. But the way that we say that in a particular way, we can grow in sensitivity if we've learned how these things will land on people. If you are in a pantheistic culture, believes that all paths lead to God, or a a pluralistic culture that believes all paths lead to God and no one should judge another and everything is the same the moment that you talk about the exclusivity of Christ, you're going to hit a nerve. We need to be skillful. What's that game with the... Operation, remember operation? We don't have to go around intentionally banging the sides, right? You, we, we, can, we can be more skillful in saying, oh, this needs to be removed. Like, just, just listen with me here. This needs to be removed. But I've learned. So, one of the things that we should do is commit ourselves to listening when we can. We must understand a little bit about our world. If someone came from Mars or from outer space or even from India and said, tell me about your world. What's Tallahassee like? What do the people enjoy and what are they committed to? What's America's problems? And that's, that's what a lot of people are saying right now. What's your problem? A, a lot of people would say this. What are our problems? Well, can we describe it? What does it mean that we live in a postmodern And postmodern, he's even kind of of quaint now. A post-Christian, biblically illiterate, pluralistic society that invests in and is committed to the idea of self-identification. How does this change the way that we interact with people and what they need to know of Christ? We're going to spend the next three nights on Sunday evenings at Sunday Night Church. I'm going to teach through a book by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of self. The rise and triumph of the self. And I believe this book is important because it helps us to understand the philosophies that drive what many of us believe to be the insanity of our day and age. And I would submit to you, Carl Truman starts his book with this question, how did it come to be that we live in a world where the statement, I am a man or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, how has it come to be that we live in a world where that is completely and utterly understandable to a vast majority of the people in our nation? Not only understandable, but that must be completely reasonable. And how to understand that? How do we, how do we interact with this? And I would submit to you that a Christian's job is not over when we've rejected the statement and guffawed. Is that all that God asks of Christians, is just make sure that we, (laughs) at the right moments, we just go around the world bouncing into things to to downplay? Or are we called to a deeper understanding? Are we called to read and to think and to ask more questions and to say, oh, okay, this is dangerous, this is bad, but let me come near. Let's be present and let's be fluent. More than that, and I will say this, you know what else leads to gospel fluency and, its, and mastery of the gospel and its contextual applications? Actually considering truth and scripture. The more you see connections and the more you understand the moments, all of the different kinds of people that Jesus ministered to and the way that he did it, all of the ways that the laws of the Old Testament interacted with the nations that were around them, the way that Israel interacted. What do we do about stealing and theft and taxation? Well, there's a lot in the Bible about that. What do we say about money and generosity and greed? Well, there's a lot of money, there's a lot, there's a lot of money passages in the Bible. Well, what do we say about sexual problems and deficiencies? Well, the Bible says a lot about that. We need to dive in and actually be willing to learn beyond the basics in order to become fluent in the gospel. Paul is clearly fluent. He's a master of the Jewish law. And now he has become a master of the way that Jesus answers all of the hopes and dreams of the Jewish tradition and law and teaching. And so he's not shy. And I want to I say this being fluent in the gospel and applying it contextually does not mean pulling back from the truth of it. Here's just a few of the things that Paul says in by way of doctrine. These are doctrinal statements. Just a few of the things that he articulates and touches on that are theological God's sovereignty, God's aseity. Aseity means his, his self existence, he doesn't need anything else. God is creator, and then the creation and the dignity of man, the image of God on man. God is personal and near, His imminence. Paul remarks on God as a living Father, still here and connected and close, personal. Paul mentions to them, you need to consider and to repent of your unbelief. Paul describes judgment and the resurrection as it's contained and points to Jesus. All of these things, Paul effortlessly describes to them because he studied, because he knows, he's fluent in these things. Now, one thing I want to point out, maybe as a defense of myself, I don't even know, many commentators, I'll just say D.A. Carson among them, has mentioned that this conversation that he would have had, these are likely just the headings or the outline of the major speeches that Paul was going to give. You know how sometimes you read the Bible and you see this thing described, and at the end of the chapter, people come to know Christ, and you think, wow, that was 45 seconds. It's like an elevator pitch, and by the time he gets to the lobby, they've repented. Well, the reality is that in many of these cases, what is being recorded is just the headings of a major speech that oftentimes, custom would say that oftentimes, each of these headings could go on for half an hour into the hour's. Remember that time when Paul is teaching on themes of Scripture and the kid gets so bored and asleep that he falls out of the window and dies? That's more the reality of these kinds of teaching than just, all you need is the truth in 45 seconds and leave it up to God. Well, we do leave it up to God, but Paul gives a lot of his time and a lot of his thought on these things. He's fluent in the gospel and he applies it to the questions that they actually have and so we ought to know how has the gospel impacted and how will it impact each of the areas of life that the people around us are struggling with what does life in jesus say about our striving and our longing for money and security and power what does life in jesus say about our constant desire and our addiction sometimes to things like pleasure and sex and fame and affection as we become more fluent in the gospel, we'll see connections between life and de- the life and death and re- resurrection of Jesus and then all of the rest of life. Because ultimately, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus speaks to and cures all that is in this world or it does not. And for those of us who desire to be a, witness, a winsome witness in the world must realize that as we learn, we'll grow in our ability to speak. Let me read the last few verses of chapter 17 in Acts. Acts 17, starting in verse 32. Paul is present. He has been fluent, very adept. preaching the gospel, and then this is the result, starting in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I want to pause here for a moment. And the word that I'm going to use is frequency. And how I describe a gospel frequency is a persistent commitment in informal and formal settings to speak these things despite opposition or risk. And maybe I could even say despite opposition or risk, maybe just despite the evident fruit. I don't know about you, but is it comforting to know that Paul, the most amazing and most successful missionary of all time, preaches the gospel in a moment that that seems unbelievable. They asked him to come do it. He gives these major speeches. It sounds amazing. And his results were at best mixed. There were some who called him a babbler when he started, and they only grew in their mocking as he finished. Here's a question no matter how present you are and how fluent you are in the gospel, are you prepared to to be mocked? I mean, you're just going to be mocked. There is not a world where we get to live the Christian life and it's all of its distinctions and all of its claims and then describe that to every single person and we are lauded and people pour confetti on us and say, where have you been all my life? Everything you said right now is the best thing of all time. Thank you. And I know our hearts long for that because I want that. But Paul, the most successful, important missionary of all time, they only grow in their mocking of him. Then a few others, he at least gets them to say, well, listen, we're not mocking you openly. We'll listen again. But, but, when we commit to a persistent proclamation of the gospel in informal and formal settings, despite opposition or risk, the hope that we have, this love that led us to risk the response of others. What's going to happen is that the Spirit of God will speak through the truth of the gospel and it will make people alive. Belief will erupt. He's naming these people, I think, because, the, because Luke believes that those who are reading understand who these people are. They likely went on to have a role or a position in the church. So, imagine people that we know, right? So, I'm writing, I'm describing a situation where someone is preaching the gospel and describing it, and then I'm like, yeah, but some of them actually believed, among them are Brian Zhang of Pittsburgh. Among them. And this among them is meant to give confidence that when we persist, when love leads us not only to be present, when love leads us not only to learn and to become more fluent, but when love leads us to say, I'm going to risk right now, and I'm going to keep telling you this, or I'm going to step through, even though I'm fearful right now that I'm going to be rejected, that when we do this, people come to life. They come to life. This verse 34, and all of it's sort of, well, it just wraps up the passage In all of its throwawayness, some men joined and believed. What that means is that some transferred from darkness to light eternally. And there ought to be something in us, some habit in us, that says that's what we want. That's what we pray for. That's what we're hoping for. Now, none of our identity and none of our existence and certainly none of God's truthfulness depends on the kind of fruit that we personally see. We're going to still be church and we're going to show up next week and we're going to sing songs and we're going to make this building in this time about God who is worthy and will be magnified and one day will be as glorious in our eyes as He has been forever. None of that changes, but the desire that we have is that the promises of the gospel would gather more and more in so that when we partake in the gospel supper, the Lord's Supper, that we just keep having to build more chairs. Just extend the table, make it longer. So my desire for us is that we say we are willing to be present and then more than that, we say, I'm going to commit myself to learn. I'm going to read as much as I can about Jesus so that I can see him in all facets of my life, and then I'm going to learn about my neighbors and my friends in this world, as crazy it is. I'm going to learn about it. I want to say, I want to turn my, my shock and my convictions into curiosity about how it is that someone could believe these crazy things. What are they trapped by? And then beyond that, we're going to say, let's risk a little bit and frequently talk about these things. I don't know if you make resolutions. Are you a resolutioner? Can you add this to the list? Let's be a winsome witness this year. Let's pray. God, I pray and I ask that you would move us toward others. And in this category, that... Paul is witnessing in, there are Jewish and devout people there, so I don't discount this room. God, help us to pursue one another. Help us to speak the gospel and to see those who are teetering or dangerously close to shipwrecking their faith. God, help us to be present and fluent and frequent in calling them to Jesus. More than that, And beyond that, God, I pray in our own homes, with our spouses, with the children that you have given, that we would no longer perceive or see anyone according to the flesh. But instead, we would be ambassadors and a witness and do so in a winsome way. God, I pray for tonight and the nights to come on Sunday evenings as we try to understand the philosophies of our day. I pray, God, you give us insight. Help us to see what the gospel says and how it impacts and how it brings life where there is death. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for the instinct that we have toward others. So many in this room that pray fervently for the lost, so many in this room who are adept and committed and even risky in their evangelism, God bless them. May their number grow. Send us. May we be like Jesus, who saw the crowds and had compassion on them, but then told us as well to pray that workers would go into the harvest field. God, send us as workers, and then beyond us, send even more. Jesus, you are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive the just reward of his suffering. So Jesus, gather many in. We pray this in your name. Amen.